Hi, my name is Ben Atkinson and welcome to the Functional Health Podcast. I interview some of the leading voices in nutrition and lifestyle medicine and I will share with you their stories, their expertise and their advice, shedding light on the industry from each of their perspectives to help improve your health from today. This week, I'm delighted to share with you my conversation with Marek Doyle. Marek is an experienced nutritionist and is extremely well-versed in helping those with metabolic and immune disorders. Today, we take a bit of a deeper dive into thyroid conditions, covering everything from the who, the what, the where, the why, the how. So, without further ado, Marek, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ben. Hi, you're very welcome. Um, so we've just been chatting before, but for people that don't know you, can you just give a rough introduction how you got into this space? Of course, yeah. So I am a nutritional therapist and I've been doing it for about 15 years. So it's been an interesting 15 years. And uh, whereas I started off working primarily with athletes and I'm looking at body composition, conditioning, um, then started to work much more with members of the public who wanted fat loss and that was going very well apart from those for which it wasn't going so well and that always left this question as to well, why are some people responding so well and others not and uh yeah that's obviously been the question that's pretty much driven my thinking my research uh the statistical analysis over this time and yeah equally i've had two hits uh, on my own health once in 2007 which was pretty much a case of great diet but terrible living uh overly uh training under sleeping doing all the things that i recommend others avoid um 2012 moldy flats two hits on my spine in the same week Oof. so yeah that was another um <laughs> another interesting phase but yeah it, it, both of those did sculpt my my thoughts um the, the first one made me realize how how modern medicine is is just not able to tend to those that don't quite have a named condition um and the second time it was it really made it clear that actually yeah there was a whole lot more that I needed to integrate a whole lot more uh, factors than you know my uh, plans and model at the time had actually uh, catered for. So, yeah, harsh learning and forced learning, but uh, learning nonetheless. So, uh, yeah, since then I've, uh, I've built a model of personalised nutrition. So, very much a case of well, what does the individual in front of me need to do? in order to achieve their goals so uh i hope that's a reasonable summary of 15 no. years <laughs> it certainly is and it's very hard to do and i think you know there is a saying like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and i think that certainly applies to you in your clinical practice right well yeah i think what doesn't kill you generally makes you tired weak and anxious um <laughs> uh, but hopefully that then leads on to uh yeah a a more advanced more comprehensive perspective which i like to think is the perspective i i now sit with <laughs> good 
Well, I'm glad because this is the reason why I'm speaking with you today. So, <laughs> and we're going to talk about. Well, let's see where we go, shall we? <laughs> so, today it's all about thyroidism. You know, some of my family have been affected by Hashimoto's thyroiditis, and obviously, there's a there's a whole spectrum of uh, illnesses and conditions which, which can affect the thyroid. And for those people who are listening, which may not be aware, the thyroid is a gland. It's a small butterfly-shaped gland um, at the base of the neck. And it's responsible in producing hormones essential basically for the whole body metabolism, right? A lot of people call it the master gland. So where did your interest in this kind of area begin? It's difficult to say where it began, but it's just one area that I think is so fascinating because, one, this is the front line uh, mm-hmm. of all treatment plans. Uh, there's no organ system in the body that doesn't have some sort of impact on the thyroid and there's no organ system that isn't impacted by the thyroid so it's got to be central in every treatment plan that that we're looking at you know whether i'm looking at interventions in the gut or interventions at the adrenals or or mitochondria well all of those are having major interactions with the thyroid and they're two-way interactions but also number two is that this is also just the the area probably more than any other where dogma in both conventional medicine Mm -hmm. and in alternative medicine this is where we're getting it most wrong (laughs) and this is where there's more elementary errors i think than anywhere else so yes, it's it's a fascinating subject. Yeah, exactly. And I think what's really interesting um, about this whole area is that there's so many physical symptoms, I feel, which a lot of people experience and it'd be quite hard to distinguish between when you're experiencing low thyroid or if you're just fatigued. Mm. Um, and there's multiple different reasons, obviously, why fatigue can occur. And mm. I was wondering what are the the physical and clinical symptoms of if someone has a thyroid condition and what, I guess, you see most frequently in clinic? Well, the biggest uh, set of symptoms will always revolve around energy. Mm -hmm. So in those instances, I'm mainly looking for issues with brain activity, brain function, sharpness, also investment in the digestive tract also uh, ability to finish jobs whether that's you know completing the rejuvenation of 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 skin turnover whether that's uh you know permitting the activity in the follicles that allow for us to have normal thick luscious hair um those i think are always very key because yes of course there's that overall fatigue but not necessarily in those who are pumping out excess levels of adrenaline. I mean, they won't sleep, but they won't necessarily identify with with the fatigue. Mm-hmm. And of course, yeah, we always have this this presentation of ah, uh, low thyroid equals weight gain, and that is often the case. But there's a lot of people that I work with who are underweight with right. low thyroid so it's it is worthwhile touching on that that it's not a case 
of well you can't have low thyroid because mm -hmm. if you did you'd be overweight as many of my clients have been told by their doctors so in that instance yeah we're we're really interested in um the thyroid in regards to the way that that provides energy regulation for every single cell in the body so in that sense if something's not working anything one question that we should ask is is the thyroid involved is it behind this uh sometimes it is sometimes it's not that what just to revert back to what you said before about people being underweight with hypothyroidism that is hugely interesting for me because I automatically assume if your metabolism is low, quite often people present as being overweight, but I'm not sure, does does being hypothyroid affect your appetite, for example, so people will naturally reduce their calories, maybe when they reduce their thyroid hormone output? So yes, I've, I've seen a lot of that pattern whereby we're seeing the meat substantially less, mm -hmm. and equally, What's interesting is your digestive process that takes up 30% of our energy requirements every single day. So there's actually a huge investment that we need to put in, in order to get back. And it's really interesting when you look at the number of ways through which the thyroid can help us, quote unquote, mm -hmm. help <laughs> us by reducing the formation of T3. Uh, the active thyroid hormone, and when that happens, there's so many processes in various different cells that just aren't going to occur the way they should. So digestion is a perfect example of one of those zones. And so what happens when we stop producing the bile? What happens when we stop moving the digestive tract the, the speed that we should and thus permit these very pro-fermentation conditions, suddenly we're creating a environment where microbial imbalance is nearly guaranteed. Uh, what happens then and the inflammatory impact that that now has, which further drains our energy resources and alters mitochondrial function impacts on the way that fat cells respond to their signaling so um yeah often yeah we're gonna see a dramatic shift across a whole number of areas and but yeah if we've got chaos in the gut that often can have a huge impact on appetite because turns out if humans feel horrendous every time they eat, they tend to eat less. <laughs> yeah. And what you just outlined there was like a classic, um, I guess, functional medicine outlook on a, <laughs> on a condition, right? Because if someone- Hate to be predictable. <laughs> but if someone, because uh, it's just interesting, like when you, when you um, outline it like that, because saying that hypothyroidism affects the gut, and then maybe might lead to something like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, for example, mm -hmm. SIBO. And then people might look at the SIBO and think, well, that's the reason why they're tired, because it's the gut which is causing maybe nutrients not to be uh, absorbed as much. Mm. They're eating less naturally because it's painful when people do eat often. Um, and then people will concentrate on that rather than the root cause, which is 
hypothyroidism. Um, well, exactly, and that is actually something that I, I don't know whether it's just me. So, yeah, uh, interested in in your input on this, but I feel like the last two years, all all I hear people talk about is SIBO, um, <laughs> and uh, SIBO A, <laughs> SIBO, SIBO C, CBD, and um, yeah, and and it's a really important thing because I what a what a nuisance for when you can't eat without experiencing pain. Yeah. When you can't eat without generating gases that will cause havoc with the cells in your gut lining and therefore mean that there's no longer a barrier between the gut and the bloodstream. And that's kind of not what we want. So yeah, when when eating is actually driving the problem, well, you can't not eat. And so... Yeah, it, it is a really big deal, but again, there's well, we see it with thyroid. Some people look at ah, thyroid. That is that's that's the root cause of everything, uh, or they look at oh, see, but oh, we found it. We found the root <laughs> cause instead of realizing well, actually, yes, it is the root cause of many symptoms that we've just been talking about. But what's the root cause of that? Yeah, And then you realize that actually we've got a cycle going on. Weird that the body would have ways that it would change its function based on the contextual cues that it's receiving. But turns out this survival machine that we all walk around in, the human body, it's capable of responding to the environment's both outside cues, inner cues. And yet we're always looking at cycles. Well, if we're not, we're not getting anywhere. Yes. So just to outline it for people, when you're looking at the thyroid hormone and you're trying to maybe diagnose or see if the thyroid is involved, what hormones are you looking at and what do they do? Um, so if I was to run a thyroid panel, I would run TSH, yes. T4, free t4 t3 reverse t3 and uh, antibodies so that means anti-tpo which is anti-thyroid peroxidase and anti-tg which is anti-thyroglobulin and just to um for the listeners the tsh is thyroid stimulating hormone and then that stimulates the thyroid to create t3 or t4 which is converted into t3 but they actually make both of them at the same time TPO is the thyroid peroxidase enzyme. It's an enzyme normally found in the, found in the thyroid gland to create T3 and T4. Um, but you can find TPO antibodies, which is a predictor of hypothyroidism or a form of autoimmune thyroidism. Um, really interesting. Conventional tests don't normally test for TPO, I don't think. Is that right? Well, yeah, so there are occasions when I will see somebody for the first time and they'll come in with a number of tests. And occasionally it's included, uh, which is nice to see. But so many times I will be told, well, it's not my thyroid because actually that's been tested. And then we look at the test and it was just TSH and T4. And to the day, and we are still in a scenario where most doctors are running just TSH and T4, which is scandalous. So there's, um, so I'll, I'll lean on a study here, which demonstrated that 
almost all hyperthyroidism will be missed if you only measure TSH and T4. Um, and yeah, this this study is it was done in 1979, uh, so it's hardly new. And yet here we are 41 years later and it just isn't something that's being applied. Um, it, it can pick up on some forms of hyperthyroidism, but majority, 80%, I believe it was uh, in this study, will be missed from these markers, which are pitifully inadequate for most people. Yeah, especially complex conditions. Um, something we didn't touch upon, but maybe it's good because people which are aware of the hyperthyroid or hyperthyroid and trying to do something about mm. it, they, they'll, they'll be aware of TSH and T3 and T4, but maybe not reverse T3 or T4. Could you explain what mm. they are and why they are important for us to look at? Okay, yeah. So um, I feel like understanding the thyroid is always easiest done by understanding the enzymes. Uh, now, the majority of thyroid issues that I see don't actually involve any dysfunction or any problems with the thyroid gland mm. itself. So, of course, the thyroid gland is pretty central to the thyroid system, but the job of the thyroid gland is to respond to that chemical signal you mentioned, TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone. And then it produces T4, tiniest amount of t3 but yeah mainly produces t4 into the bloodstream at that stage the thyroid gland has done its job so now it's the role of these enzymes which you'll find dotted around every cell in the body and these deiodinase enzymes do exactly what they say on the tin they remove an iodine molecule and as such t4 becomes t3 which is now the active thyroid hormone. And so that's where we're going to see the primary stimulation of um, proteins mm -hmm. inside the cell. It, it will stimulate uh, um, cells in the pancreas to release pancreatic enzymes. It will stimulate uh, bone cells to produce proteins that turn over bone. It will stimulate uh, brain cells to produce neurotransmitters. It allows these cells to do what they're meant to do. Uh, and it's the deiodinase enzymes that actually do that. So deiodinase 1, that's the primary focus for most of our discussions because that's the one that turns the almost inactive T4 into highly active T3. Lovely. But yes, as you mentioned, reverse T3. Well, with this is a slightly different version of the enzyme. This is deiodinase 3. And it's induced by a number of signals in the body. So infection is a great example. Uh, lack of oxygen is another example. Um, high cortisol uh, can do that. Uh, antioxidant issues. So, too, so there's, a, there's a number of uh, cues which will induce the release of this enzyme deionidase 3 and that will form reverse t3 so reverse t3 is very similar in its molecular shape to good old 
lovely, wonderful T3, regular T3, except it blocks T3's action. So this is a defensive uh, thyroid mm-hmm. hormone. And poor old reverse T3 is, is continually painted as the bad guy. Um, it's always spoken of in the sense that we must get that reverse T3 down. And I think it's really worthwhile just understanding the nuance. Reverse T3 is highly protective. It slows down the activity of these energy-using processes inside each cell so that the body can actually help restock its energy supplies. It, it, It turns down usage to allow you a better chance of surviving. And so, yeah, that's whereby, you know, trying to jump past these checkpoints and sidestep the body's regulatory systems, it can easily get into trouble. And instead, I would always be looking at, well, what's inducing this increased reverse T3? Mm-hmm. Yes, we want a scenario where the body feels no need to produce more reverse T3. We don't want to ignore the fact it is producing reverse T3. It is blocking thyroid activity deliberately. Um, so my question in those scenarios is why? Right, perfect. I think you outlined that beautifully. Um, and especially you, you touched on points which I wasn't fully aware of either. So that's that's <laughs> that's great. Um, what, one thing um, I want to discuss with you is like the the role because this is a question i get asked a lot right mrs patient Mm -hmm. i eat well i eat whole grains i don't eat any processed foods i have seven portions of fruits and vegetables a day Mm -hmm. um but i've got hypothyroidism why and this is a question which comes up a lot and i think if you're looking at a person with a healthy lifestyle it can be very difficult and upsetting for them when they get diagnosed mm. with an illness which they think they've done everything in their power to protect them from, especially if they had yeah. their family had it or or whatever. Um, why do you think these instances happen? And obviously, a functional medicine answer will be like, it's different in everybody. Um, so <laughs> I'm fully expecting that. You can't but, say. <laughs> but is there any... No, no, I, I, can, I can say. Okay. The, the question is very relevant because I know exactly what you mean. If I'd put in all that effort, if I'd invested my financial and emotional resources in being healthy and Mm -hmm. playing to the rules, I'd feel pretty ripped off if I then, uh, yeah, basically was was sent away from the doctor's office with this diagnosis and that little uh, small print at the bottom. By the way, this will be forever Mm because there's no cure for hypothyroidism in your brain. Um. So the question, why? Well, first, it is really worthwhile in recognizing that that's going to be different from one person to the next. So let's run through a couple of scenarios. The single most interesting uh, one is always going to be the stress factor. Um, So you can eat as great a diet as you want, but if 
as part of your healthy routine, you're waking up at 4.45 every m every morning and doing 10K run and then obviously dashing to the juice bar to get yourself a lovely kale and spirulina smoothie and then dashing over to wherever you need to be and then getting on the train. All of that stuff that sometimes we do all get pulled into doing. The question is how much of a stress load is going on? Equally, yeah, can there be um, internal uh, induction of that limbic response? Absolutely. And that's especially relevant if we have low energy status or if we have excess inflammation, which can have a massive impact on the activation profile of the brain. But in any case, the, the stress autoimmunity link is very well established and the primary driver involves the gut lining now we talk a lot about leaky gut and when we talk about leaky gut we're always talking about the role of gluten and the role of alcohol and you know inflammatory responses allergies so on and so forth all of these things that can impact on the zonulin and the gaps between these cells and, and basically create holes between these cells. And that is indeed a very important thing to consider. What I never really hear people talk about is the role of stress in opening up um, the, the gut. And so whereas that inflammatory process that I was discussing, that, that's paracellular permeability. We're now talking about um, transcellular permeability. This is a different process whereby during that stress reaction, we're not just emptying our fat cells uh, to get more resources into the bloodstream. We're not just emptying our uh, glycogen stores in the liver to supply more available nutrients into the bloodstream. We're also opening these channels in the gut lining. The cell itself creates a channel to get in sugar and salt into the bloodstream. It's, it's a, a desperate attempt to scavenge more of these resources, which we are likely to need if we're going to be running, fighting, potentially bleeding. So this unfortunately while it does give us the sugars and the salts that we want also allows piggybacking to go on little endotoxins little fragments of dead bacteria actually part of the membrane of certain types of bacteria and when these bacteria die these little fragments are small enough to get into the bloodstream which is where we do not want them now you can't get infected from these but your immune system is going to be stimulated into a very dramatic level of excess activity because it's reading these non-mammalian barcodes. It knows that there is bacterial components in the bloodstream and it does what evolution has designed it to do. Pulls the emergency cord and elicits a violent response to try and stop you from dying from sepsis and there's just one problem with that where is that inflammation going to lead what problems is it going to cause you know not only with 
brain fog and low energy and this agitation and energy mm. signaling. But will that now induce autoimmunity somewhere? We know the thyroid is one of the most vulnerable glands. Uh, it's the only gland in the body that actually uses hydrogen peroxide, which when it's in a bottle is called bleach. It, it actually uses that just for normal physiology. Um, it, it, it is, it is sensible. We know that interferon treatments, which is um, a, a, a immune treatment, will induce thyroiditis in 40% of people receiving that. That's mm. how sensitive the thyroid gland is. So, so yeah, so that's one. <laughs> that's one way <laughs> that we could see uh, a great diet um, and autoimmunity occur together, even though, according to the rules, we shouldn't. Uh, we could also go into environmental exposure, mold. Absolutely. That's a great way to cause inflammation. <laughs> and you know, what if you have those small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and the food you're eating happen to be flaring that? I mean, there's, there's more options, but I'll, I'll end up talking all day so no the mold point i've never actually touched upon before but the the um process that you're outlining the the inflammatory response with the leaky gut leading to mm. autoimmunity that molecular mimicry and um, we i actually touched upon it in uh, episode one with dr tom o'brien he spoke about this as well and it's something which comes up in basically every autoimmune condition right and he has this beautiful yeah. saying that the chain will break at the weakest link so even yeah. though so a lot of people will come with different autoimmune conditions but the underlying root cause may be relatively similar in terms of it all starts with that gut hyperpermeability, that leaky gut which is there mm -hmm. which is what you've just described when you talk well, yeah, about... and um, so yeah, the both types I think are really important, and it's just a shame that as a community we're only discussing the inflammatory-induced, um, yeah, a, a, a permeability which separates cells. We're not considering that actually the central nervous system will deliberately <laughs> induce permeability given. Uh, a circumstance where it believes this action is in its interests. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, yeah, that's so interesting because like stress never really comes into it. And I remember Rangan Chatterjee, he, he wrote that stress solution book. And he said in his first book that he thought nutrition played the biggest role in health. And then in his second, he, he said stress. Now, I'm not sure if that was just to sell his book, but um, <laughs> I read both of them and they are very compelling and easy to follow. But the, the point of stress, I think it's more than ever so pre prevalent, especially in modern, modern day. And, you know, I love being active and doing, you know, working and also doing bits on the side and just because I'm passionate about this topic, right? So I love communicating the science to people, but I can, I do, and do tend to burn myself out on occasion. And I know I shouldn't, but it does happen. Um, and I think it's something which, even though we know certain part, aspects of our lifestyle are bad, that induces stress, we still kind of want to do it, <laughs> which is something. Well, it's I find a fascinating subject, and I mean, I always normally take a big deep breath before I broach the subject in clinic because honestly, most people don't want to be told um, that they may need to deal with the stress issue because a it's very difficult to define. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, I look at it from a neurobiological basis. Um, I think some of the um, approaches that combine both neurobiology and frontline psychology can be really handy in these instances. Um, using what we've yielded from the brain scan technology that's now become much more prevalent and being able to actually correlate um, the role of core emotive circuitry versus inhibitory circuitry and being able to pin that down to key areas of the brain. Uh, So for example, we have an area of our brain called the default mode network and that responsible for our rules our preferences our beliefs it acts in a filter sense um but what's fascinating about that is how overactive that area is in individuals with depression disorders and anxiety disorders and how when you challenge someone's belief system that's an area that lights up big time and uh, so, yeah, there's, there's a, I won't go into uh, the various tools, tricks and approaches that we've got to address these uh, scenarios where it is overactive. But I think one important pattern is that for some people, they are so overwhelmingly stressed that they never actually reach a stage where they're not in full mobilization mode or as i may well call it in clinic battle mode if the bullets are always flying overhead 24 7 they actually don't have any contrast in which case they genuinely cannot fathom that they are stressed because stress doesn't affect them and that's where i would say is one of the the most useful uh, starting points if people want to consider could stress be playing a role mm. in my symptoms well the short answer is yes because you're human <laughs> um but the <laughs> more useful answer is if you don't feel any difference in scenarios where other people are getting flustered and stressed out or after which they're feeling tired and need to go and recover what we're really seeing there is there is no contrast regardless of how stressful and how much an emergency scenario is induced in your physiology if there's no contrast that means you're never leaving battle mode so that would that be um yeah something uh that i would drop as a uh point to consider mm-hmm. um but yeah i mean there's a whole load of things that i i think are, are relevant when it comes to these things that's that's just one of them um but it's one that's often overlooked that's for sure yeah 100 and, and you touched upon mold as well and that is something i've never really covered before and probably something which i think people might be hearing oh well, hang on he's talking about mold and that affects my health i've never really heard of that before so that might be something which might be perceived as something quite contentious. Well, what do you think? I think contentious is a good word, mm. primarily because I understand um, somebody who may well have spent a lot of their emotional resources, a lot of their time and 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 it's hard if you are chronically unwell and fatigued to do normal things and, and, and to 
yeah, get the task done that other people are actually managing with ease. That in itself is such a daily challenge. And then when you go to a nutritional therapist who's been recommended to you by someone who's, who's basically told you the outcome, which of course is a really lovely new world and options that they had began to give up hope on. Yeah. And then they tell you, ah, we should do a mycotoxins uh, test and you see that your mycophenolic acid or any other mycotoxin is mm-hmm. 35 times higher than the top of the reference range. Well, what does this actually mean? Well, on one hand, it's great. We now know why those 17 previous protocols didn't work. Mm-hmm. You never had a fair chance because mold is that bad for these scenarios, at least in most people. Mm. Um, but the bad news is, well, if this is a rented property, you're probably going to need to move out because let's not naively expect um, parasite landlords to think, do you know what? I will spend the £8,000 to get this properly uh, solved and and resolved because I care about providing a healthy environment for the tenants that pay me. Normally, you're moving out. That's (laughs) stressful for anyone. That's what in the top three life stressors list, moving home. Um, So it's not something anybody wants to do, but often it's necessary and and I'm the lucky guy that gets to deliver that bad news or of course maybe it's their own home in which case well it's it's easy to get solved just reach deep deep into that wallet you know the one that's (laughs) been drained for the last six years as you've gone from practitioner to practitioner and done expensive tests and speculated on this 120 pound wonder supplement so yeah it's it is contentious, but uh, equally at the same time, I have never seen anybody get the results that they should when they've been exposed to mold and they don't take action on it. So it's, what kind of it's a big one. I guess when you're saying mold, like the first thing that pops in my head, and I know you don't mean this, is like mushrooms growing on on like the wall. Do you know what I mean? Or are we just talking like, dampness can you always see the mold that's there um i guess for people at home that may be thinking well my house isn't moldy but might be affected by these things yeah so it's it's very simple if you really want to know whether there's any mold in your home which would be to do an ermy test or to get some sort of air sampling done that will tell you what you need to know but it's a lot of money mm. to uh, shell out. Uh, we're, we're talking several hundred pounds in most right. instances. Okay. Or, of course, pay a professional to come out, do the entire site survey. And that's normally about 750, sometimes more. So it's a, it's a big old chunk. Um, there's a uh, mold specialist uh, called Michael Schrantz, and uh, he's got a great phrase. He goes, often you just don't need a specialist. It's like a flat tire. You don't need to call out the repairman to see you've got a flat tire. It's so obvious. And in that instance, a lot of the people I work with, maybe we'll do a VCS test. Maybe we'll follow that up with a mycotoxin profile, mm-hmm. uh, which is urinary levels of, of uh, mold toxins. And they say, ah, do you know what? 
I actually have seen a huge growth of dark black mold. In which case, we know what needs to be done there. We don't need any special testing or expert eyes to come in and tell us, yeah, you've got mold. We know. <laughs> so um, on a really cheap way of seeing if there's any vulnerability, get a cheap hygrometer. Okay. Measure the humidity levels in every room. Compare it to outside. Now, apart from after when you just use the kitchen or when you've just used the bathroom, apart from those times, your humidity levels should be the same in every room and they should be the same as outdoors. If not, we've we got to be suspicious. doesn't guarantee there's an issue, but it certainly means that we may well be, be looking at that. In other words, if you've got 85% humidity in your bathroom and 45% in every other room, and no one's turned on any taps and no one's had any showers for 12 hours. I'm very suspicious of right. what's going on in that room. Because that is like the perfect environment for, for the mo gro growth of mold. There we go. Got my words out eventually. <laughs> yeah, it's, and it, it's true. So it's very, it's very easy to grow mold if you have high humidity mm -hmm. and if you have a lack of air circulation. And, and this is where mold is something I'm sure 20 years from now, um, when we're finishing off the last loo roll that we bought earlier this year, we will also <laughs> be, be looking back at this time thinking, why weren't we smarter about mold? So from the 1970s onwards, governments have uh, induced builders, they've given them incentives to build super energy efficient homes. And to do that, what have we done? Double glazing. We seal in the home to allow no air exchange on the outside. That's a pretty silly thing to do. Mm. And then on top of that, we, we end up living in cities, often these old buildings that have been upgraded with the double glazing, and we might dry our clothes indoors. And, uh, yeah, it's, it is a, a conundrum for many. You know, where else are you meant to dry them? um equally yeah, yeah do you need to get a dehumidifier yes if, if that's the only place you can dry clothes you have to get a dehumidifier otherwise yeah it's only a matter of time yeah i, I, I mean I, I live in a flat and we don't have any outdoor space unfortunately right now and um so when i uh, dry my clothes in the house if i'm not putting them in the dryer which i rarely do they're by two open windows and i leave them open basically all day uh, until those well, yeah. days are dry, right? But I still don't think that's probably enough. But yeah, it's just some things which you just have to, yeah, would do the best you can, I suppose. But that is um, the cheap test that you were talking about is something which I'm considering to doing now. That would be interesting to see. So yeah, it's um, but yeah, that is just one of these um, obstacles mm -hmm. that often. <laughs> I'm a nutritional therapist. Um, my focus is the nutrients, the enzymes, mm. the, the, the physiological levels of all these chemicals. That's my specialist area, and that's my entire focus for the last 15 years. But the, the key thing that I've always looked at and, and run countless statistical analyses over the results I'm getting and more importantly, when I've not been getting them, um, has been to try and establish, well, when is nutrition going to work here? 
and when is nutrition not going to work? Yes. And that is, I think most people can agree, it's a really simple but really important question to ask. And yeah, that really is what we should all be asking, I feel, instead of trying to sell the idea that, ah, uh, no, th- these these uh, supplements, these are the best way to deal with thyroid issues or, or whatever it concern we're dealing with. Trying to sell, you know, the approach. It's you know, go to an acupuncturist with chronic illness. What does an acupuncturist recommend? Acupuncture. Go to a chiropractor with the same illness. What does a chiropractor recommend? Uh, go to a nutritional therapist. And so, in that sense, yeah, I think the mold, you know, as well as you know, postural issues, as, as well as those stress issues. These these are issues where I try to um, take in as much data as I can to quickly and accurately identify can this person respond Mm -hmm. to you know the the nutritional support that i'm about to provide um and if they can't you know why do we think that's the case of where do they need to go before they can now have a fair chance and weirdly enough when they actually go away and take away those obstacles and then come back to me I look great because now they respond often to very simple stuff that is just what they needed. But if I had given that to them previously, it wouldn't have worked. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about like what a protocol would look like in terms of nutrition, I guess, because like there are a plethora of books that you can buy right now and different diets. Mm. And we've touched upon why, you know, you can't just give one diet to someone and expect it to work but the autoimmune paleo protocol which is you know a diet which you uh, i think you abstain from grains nuts i'm gonna lose one of them here but uh, grains nuts legumes dairy eggs soy corn and nightshades have i missed anything else off i think that's it that sounds about right to me <laughs> yeah so it's quite it's a very restrictive diet and a, a lot of people use this for but not just thyroidism hyper or hypo but any autoimmune condition and i guess it's it's meant to be one of the most anti-inflammatory diets i just wanted to get your opinion on it and whether you think it's always necessary so is it always necessary definitely not um is it necessary for a decent chunk of people definitely um so there's a lot of uh people who they have lost the ability to tolerate plant poisons Mm -hmm. and there's enough plant poisons out there. Uh, I think for some people, it, it does require a bit of a paradigm shift to acknowledge that, oh, these plants don't actually exist in order to try and enrich the human diet. They're existing primarily to perpetuate their own uh, genetic code. And so in some ways for example with fruit there's a nice evolutionary trade there they when ripe they will now um have a particularly low uh, plant poison count because they want animals to eat them and then poop out the seeds um as they uh, move to the next field and the field beyond that. So that's a nice evolutionary trade. There's a relationship that we can exploit there. And there's a reason why a lot of fruits, when ripe, are a good option. But there's a whole load of foods um, that 
don't want to be eaten and they will produce um, very potent poisons. Mm -hmm. uh, let's take two examples, oxalates, lectins. Uh, so oxalates are, yeah, they're, they're a very good example of these, these natural pesticides and they will poison mammals that eat them. Unless of course, like humans, we counter evolved systems to handle them. And in that sense, yeah, we, we've got multiple digestive processes that should neutralize them. And that's why for the majority of the population, they'll never need to worry about what oxalates are, what foods contain them, because they can eat as much as they want without ever noticing. But if there is a disinvestment in the digestive tract um, and suddenly we're not breaking down food so well, if there's antibiotics that wipe out some important bacteria that would otherwise have gobbled up some of these oxalates, mm -hmm. if anything opens up the gut lining, those free oxalates that previously might have passed out in the stool, now they can be absorbed. So in these instances, the individual suddenly starts absorbing them. And these tiny crystals now end up accumulating a variety of areas in the body. And, and we don't know why some people with oxalate issues develop skin problems. Other people get joint pains. Other people get bladder irritation. Um, it, it is fascinating how whenever I see oxalates on testing, and they're included on the organic acid test, which is something I ask all individuals to take before our initial consultation um so we can already see whether that issue is in place and while the the, the consequence of those oxalates may be slightly different from one person to the next we're always expecting to see inflammation so that, that's one chemical um lectins are another lectins um yeah another classic example of plant pesticides uh, that are naturally present in a whole load of foods and it is a load of foods yeah. that is the grains the the nuts and seeds the nightshades uh the legumes mm -hmm. and conventionally weird dairy that has consumed any of those grains so it's a perfect example of well we should see those cells that line our guts, uh, they should produce the secretions that bind up and neutralize the lectins. And so we should be able to eat them without any issue. All is good. But again, if there's any lack of energy metabolism there, and maybe that's where thyroid stimulation might play a role. Uh, maybe that is due to ongoing inflammatory issues that wreck mitochondrial function maybe there's another disturbance to the mitochondrial function there it, there's there's multiple ways that that can occur but yeah if that's not going on then suddenly we are sensitive to mm. those lectins and will continue to be until we do two things one remove the problem and two undertake remedial steps so that we're no longer sensitive to them. And it's very, very feasible to do that. Um, it, people who have issues with them now, it's not a case that they just can't eat those foods. It means they're likely to need a period of time without eating them while we take control of what's going on in the gut and get that working the way it should. Absolutely. And it, 
just for the listeners, lectins are carbohydrate binding proteins and they are in a lot of foods, right? But it's important to note that not all lectins are the same and people can tolerate different amounts as well, which makes mm. it even more complicated when you're trying to work <laughs> out what you can and can't tolerate. Um, but yeah, the, the oxalates, when um, I got really interested in some of Chris Cress's work, he's an, an acupuncturist, common nutritionist in, uh, in the US, um, and he looks at like ancestral health, and he was talking about mm. how people do consume grains like in you know indigenous tribes when we were evolving thousands of tens of thousands of years ago but quite often they're fermented or the nuts would be soaked which would help to reduce the phytic acid content and when it's interesting with grains because when you soak and ferment them and even grind them you reduce the phytic acid content and the amount of lectins in them so there are ways to consume foods and even kale kale's something which is you know touted as extremely healthy and it is in some regard but it does contain some components which can be very damaging like you just mentioned oxalates mm. which you can reduce by lightly steaming them and um, so yeah but, who but, knew that humans who have maintained great health for thousands of years and have handed down tools and tricks to do so might actually have some wisdom we could use i know who right? knew it's, yeah it's so weird it's, it's like we um we, we kind of jump all that run before we can walk do you know what i mean we try and just like oh yeah this is good this food is good mm. in any form rather than looking at well Maybe it's not. Maybe what it contains could potentially damage us. It's not just well, what's exactly. food. It's not just vitamins and minerals. There's other components to it. Yeah, exactly. And and humans, I, I think that, yeah, you touched on something so valuable there. Um, don't get me wrong. I have spent more than my fair share of evenings with 20 different PubMed windows open. <laughs> Very interested in what the literature has to say and I, I will constantly scour it for, for mechanisms and proof of hypotheses that I think could could do something good but equally we've got a whole world of information on how to support human health how to protect digestive processes and you know how we can best eat good food and feel good from all of these civilizations that have come before us and just because it wasn't in a double blind randomized controlled trial well if it's been working for 14 different civilizations for thousands of years and none of which have ever met one another they've all independently come to the same conclusion that this process works well maybe there's some sense in taking that on board and asking ourselves, how can we integrate that into what we're doing? It's not normally hard. <laughs> You're so, so right. And, it, you know, I always say this, what's called absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence, <laughs> right? Yeah, you, you know, it's, it's been said so many times before, um, but it's so true. You know, if, if a diet's working for someone and they see a reduction in symptoms or they're taking a supplement and it's not harming them and the only effect that you're seeing is a benefit, you know, I don't need to see a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled <laughs> trial to say that that's working for that person. Um, I'm always, don't get me wrong, and you just highlighted it as well, I always think we should follow the evidence first and foremost and the best evidence that we have available. But if we, can, if we can't do harm and the only kind of side effect is a possible benefit of an intervention, why not give it a go? 
you know? Well, exactly. Yeah. And in that sense, if, if it was the case that barking at the moon every second Thursday <laughs> of the month um, was inducing wonderful turnarounds in 90% of individuals with autoimmune conditions, and there was no side effects. Well, I'd say, well, look, I don't understand how this is working, but we know there's no side effects. Why not give it a go? Yeah, just bark at the moon every Thursday, yeah. <laughs> Second Luckily, Thursday, I've sorry. got better strategies than that, <laughs> I'd like to say. <laughs> at least I like to think so. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I'm glad. <laughs> um, we I, both are. Yeah. <laughs> and that brings me on to something which... You know, I really struggle with this. And this is something which is um, gaining a lot of traction right now, which is the carnivore diet, right? A diet which, and different people do it in different ways. So I've, I've read um, a lot on, oh, I'm going to butcher his name now. His second name is Baker. Sean Baker. Sean Baker. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Um, And then you've got the other one, which is Saladino. And I always forget oh, his first yeah. name. <laughs> I believe it's I'm Paul doing... Saladino. Yeah, Paul Saladino. I'm doing really well here. Um, but um, Sean Baker, um, he primarily, or certainly did when he just started, just ate steak, ribeye steaks and mm. beef, for example. And um, I can't remember why he started this diet, but he, he said he felt great, really good health. Paul came out from a different angle and was experiencing like eczema and kind of autoimmune conditions and he's trained in functional mm -hmm. medicine and he kind of knows that he gets it but he wasn't experiencing the kind of health that he wanted through in like basically consuming plant foods mm -hmm. which i thought was really interesting and he took up approach of a no nose to tail carnivore diet so eating everything from offal and we know offal contains a variety it's one of the most nutrient dense foods in the world certainly liver is um as well as some of the skins and collagen and different elements even things like testicles these go as far as far to eat which is you know by most opinions very extreme um to try yeah, and get the nutrients. I, I can't actually say I've ever eaten tested. <laughs> well, neither have I. They might be wonderful. I don't know. But <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. What are we missing out on? <laughs> yes, and and this thing. But um, no, that's not the thing. What the thing is is um, when he he's consuming this, I have this that there isn't that much evidence that a carnivore diet will be of benefit. And I in my head, I know it's going to be a real struggle for people to consume all the nutrients they need to not get a nutrient deficiency related disease. Mm -hmm. um, and I know everyone starts on a spectrum of health, you know, we're born with a certain genes that we can't change. We can help them with epigenetics and our lifestyle, et cetera. But, you know, some individuals will react and are sensitive to toxins and plant chemicals more than others. And we know this, but just by talking about lectins, what do you think of the carnivore diet? Have you ever seen any evidence that it works clinically? Yes, um, oh, yes, right. I have. This so it's great. not something <laughs> that I would uh, necessarily be recommending to people as standard, because as you say, we do have very reasonable concerns there about the nutrient intake. Um, admittedly, I think a lot of that is uh, dogmatic. Um, but yes, the, the Sean Baker approved approach of don't worry about it. Just shove some steak down your half a pound, uh, sorry, well, a pound of steak a day and, yeah. and you, you'll be fine. A probably a meal. He says it's insane. Yeah. So 
Um, yeah, so, so in, in that sense, um, it is something I think only a small section of, of the population that I work with will ever need to look at. But I, I think it's a fascinating area because mm. it really does separate um, dogmatic practitioners from those who are willing to look with their own eyes as to what the evidence says. Um, and so, yes, the, the first time um, I was faced with the carnivore diet, I was working with a lady who was, no matter what we did, we were seeing incremental improvements here and you know improvements on test results. That was easy to achieve, but she was still feeling very puffy all the time. Uh, constant histamine type reactions and so um yeah she she found that the less vegetables she ate the better uh so we pursued this um we checked a nutritional status before we, we gave her a multivitamin so we, i advised her on the blend of various foods and yes it, it needs we know that plenty of humans have, have thrived on animal only diets. Yeah. We also know yeah. that those same populations will go um, to great extent to add additional plant foods um, when they get the chance. So just because we can <laughs> doesn't mean that we should. Mm -hmm. um, but in any case, yes, yeah, so th that, this was a scenario with this lady and she took away all of plant foods and suddenly slept through the night for the first time in over a decade. And following that, where there was no histamine issues, there was a whole you know, overnight shift. So it was very clear that this had uh, allowed her freedom from symptoms that had been troubling her for so long and remained resistant no matter what we did elsewhere. Long story short, we tried many times to bring back in uh, different types of vegetables and we failed repeatedly. Um, but once we got control of the gut and then she could tolerate a small amount, uh, which then eventually became a larger amount. And so that was, I think, a, a, a good um, success story for, for that uh, type of approach. But I think that it's really worthwhile talking about hormesis when it comes yeah. to, you know, carnivore versus, versus non-carnivore diet, because um, again, it's, it's, it's so interesting. I always use the term plant poisons, which seems to be uh, a, a bit of an upsetting term for most people <laughs> that think I'm, I'm, I'm jabbing at their kale smoothie. Um, where it, and, and this is the thing we need to understand exercise is a form of hormesis. Exercise is bad for us. Exercise damages our cells. But our response to exercise is good for us. And in most cases, it will see us not just repair the cells, but actually repair them stronger than when their way began. Mm. So we're now better prepared for the next insult, the next yeah. time it comes around. And that's how plant poisons work. Sorry, polyphenols, phytonutrients. <laughs> um, these polyphenols are toxic to human cells, but they're not massively toxic. They're only a tiny bit toxic and provided our cellular uh, protection responses are working well, 
we're going to see a disproportionately beneficial response to it. We're not just uh, compensating for the insult that we've received from these plants. We're also going to induce increased antioxidant activity. Our cells are better able now to handle toxins from any other stresses that we may encounter. Lovely. Apart from those people whose cellular protection responses aren't working well. Mm -hmm. And so for those people, yeah, we're going to need to look at um, dialing down their intake of polyphenols. Uh, so yeah, these are the people that every time they have a superfood of any kind, um, any adaptogenic herb, you know, herbs especially are uh, you know, super rich in polyphenols. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're the individuals that often we're looking at in these environments. That's super interesting, super, super interesting. And in terms of, you know, not that long ago, we were thinking that hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's was irreversible. Have you seen instances, and I'm guessing that it's going to be yes, but like reversal of uh, <laughs> of, <laughs> of symptoms, um, not just symptoms though, uh, but biochemical tests that show mm. reversal of Hashimoto's hypothyroidism or indeed hyperthyroidism um, from interventions yes. that you've done in the past? Yeah, so it's been fascinating to see how many times this has happened, but also when it's happened within the journey and you know what was the factor so uh for example uh yeah i can recall uh one lady coming to see me and she'd had um hashimoto's thyroiditis for over 20 years and what was so shocking about that one is before her third appointment she went and had a retest and the antibody count had already dropped into normal. And so we hadn't really you know, sunk our teeth into it um, properly at that stage. Uh, and, and most cases in the first three appointments, I'm looking more to build a map of what's mm -hmm. going on within the metabolism of this person. Um, and the way is best to do that. Yes, we'll, we'll we'll start with the organic acids tests and some screening. We'll we'll build a timeline. I'll have them fill out a detailed questionnaire, and we start connecting up symptom clusters. Um, and from that, we're identifying the obvious obstacles. And so I'm looking at removing those obvious obstacles as a form of test mm -hmm. and their response to the removal of those obvious obstacles how much of an improvement do they see from that and in what areas do they see from that that is a really good way of us working out okay well how many non-obvious obstacles do they have left and in what areas should we go hunting for them um but what's funny is when we do that and the individual suddenly gets so much better as a side effect of our map building process. Um, so yes, in, in this lady, we I, I gave her some digestive support, betaine hydrochloride, um, to help with the digestion. And I, I had expected that we would probably need to add to that. We'll probably need to, to go beyond it. Um, we never got around to that. Um, I'd also uh, given her magnesium to help with our sleep. That was very well received. 
And yeah, we'd um, taken away some oxalates from her diet. I don't think that that was actually the biggest deal. I okay. don't think because of the speed with which we saw this change with oxalates, it often does take several months to truly manifest these rewards. But um, she responded really well that first session. Um, second session, um, we had now gone and done an adrenal stress profile, mm-hmm. saw, saw some low cortisol. So I gave her some licorice root. That had really strong impacts um, in in her response. She felt a whole lot stronger, yet calmer. She was more awake in the day, more asleep at night. Responses to stress were no longer pronounced. She could go long periods of time between meals and it was no longer a problem. She was no longer dizzy upon standing. Her blood pressure was normalized. There was a whole load of benefits just from the licorice roots. So that was pleasing. But then, of course, I get the email to say, you're not going to believe this. I no longer have uh, any raised antibodies. Uh, So this was 20 odd years, um, regular testing, and suddenly it's gone. So that's uh, long term to have reversal. Mm. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, And and I I wanted to highlight that one because that one is, is actually unusual. Yeah. I don't normally see it happen that quick, and like, I'll happily share more complex ones. As well. <laughs> well, for the nature of this, I think that illustrates the point beautifully, though, that you know that they can be more complex, but quite often simple changes can have a profound effect on people's symptomology, or indeed, just sometimes. I feel in autoimmune conditions, and when I've sp- spoken to practitioners before, I think this is this resonates with them that. Sometimes a condition is too far gone to completely see complete reversal. However, you can always, 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 doesn't matter what stage you are, what sim- what kind of condition you have, improve quality of life. Well, and when I- you think of all of the angles that are open to us, mm. when you think of, yeah, all, all of the options, is there anyone with chronic issues um, that we're going to see whose digestive process cannot be better supported, um, <laughs> whose environment you know yeah do 100% of them live in mold-free environments absolutely not I'd say about 60% of the chronic cases I deal with have um these issues you know what's their mitochondrial support looking at I'm shocked at how many people I see who have tried everything um before seeing me and they've never had an organic acids test Mm. and I can see you've got some raging shortages of carnitine and B1, um, or maybe somebody else has, you know, a, a absolute lack of B2 or CoQ10. You know, any one of these is going to have catastrophic effects in limiting their energy availability. And so, yeah, it, it's fascinating how many times people have never had their vitamin d pathway measured they might have had the storage form measured um and yeah it's okay um but then we think well well let's actually look at the pathway and see is there any vitamin d activity and we look at their their um parathyroid hormone which tells us the cellular thirst and it's through the roof so we know that their vitamin d is not affecting the cells there's a blockage somewhere um 
we may well find that yeah they they just don't have the the hypoxia response they can't manifest mm. um a response to hypoxia they may well not have eaten liver for decades and if they happen to be one of the 40 percent of the population with a bco mutation beta carotene uh, um beta carotene oxo um uh, mutation then they're not going to be able to form retinol, real vitamin A. You know, that thing that helps with membrane function and allows for the gut to do what it's meant to do or what allows the mitochondria to produce energy, given that the actual energy-producing uh, reaction occurs on mitochondrial membranes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, yeah, the, the, the interesting thing is that, as you say, maybe we we can undertake some decent screening. We can pick at three, four, five different areas and see improvements in a lot of things. And they're not actually fixed, perfect, wonderful, shiny, bouncy, bubbly. But the, the mathematical likelihood of not seeing any improvements is so small. Yeah, Absolutely. And for the listeners, by the way, I'm just going to drop the or link to the organic acids test in the show notes because no people are going to be interested in that. Have yeah, you yeah. published uh, case studies on this, by the way? Because you've you've highlighted two extremely interesting ones. Um, so I'm in the process of doing that. I actually, <laughs> um, you, you have over to. Over lockdown, I've decided. Do you know what? Living behind my digital rock is probably not serving uh yeah the 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 purposes that i could be so yes i am in the process of formulating some case studies and how to use the organic acids test unfortunately in recent years my spare time has pretty much been taken up with the the academy where i train other practitioners and um so that was the the primary uh, angle through which i was trying to get more uh information out mm-hmm. enough information to get out um <laughs> So, uh, but yeah, it, it, it's, it's that I think, yeah, as you say, it, it's, there is a lot of options open to us. Um, you know, whether that's in, you're getting the, the, the liver slash bile slash, um, that drainage pathway yeah. working, whether that's in, um, yeah, strengthening the gut lining, whether that's binding up endotoxins that could otherwise exploit those issues, whether that's in supporting immunotolerance, looking at glutathione, looking at folate, looking at vitamin A, vitamin D, as I've mentioned, looking at um, inflammatory processes. Maybe we're looking at the peroxynitrite cycle, which mm. combines your mitochondrial issues with inflammatory inflammatory control and yeah there's so many different things we can take a look at and it's it's worrying sometimes that people have seen the SIBO guy they've seen the thyroid lady and they've tried a a, a heavy metal detox which predictably went horribly catastrophically wrong and it it feels to them like they've tried everything Hmm. and at no point have they undergone a reasonable testing process that aims to do that thing where we assess, do you actually have a fair chance of responding to a protocol right now? Yeah, 
exactly. Like, where's the sticking point? And I think, mm. you know, you know it's, it's difficult. And I have this, um, uh, what would you call it? I guess just predicament in my mind where, you know, f- functional medicine, I think, is wonderful. And, you know, it's got mm. a lot of acceptance in the US and not as much here, to be fair. Um, Very true. But there's, there are a portion of nutritional therapists like yourself and functional medicine practitioners, whether that be doctors, chiropractors or osteopaths, etc. But it is sometimes quite expensive to come and see one of us, right? Um, well, and it can, is. Yeah, and that can put people off because obviously they're seeing their doctor, they assume the conventional way, and don't get me wrong, doctors in the NHS are absolutely wonderful, you know, God bless each and every one of them. I'm not even religious, but there you go. I think I think, <laughs> I think they're great. Um, but, you know, it can be difficult to kind of pull away from my local GP that I've may, maybe known for 10 years to go see someone which I don't know, which I'll have to impart, give them money for. Might mm. be very expensive. And these functional tests are often quite expensive um, for something which in their mind may or may not work. Well, exactly. And I know that the rates I charge are quite pricey. There's no no beating around the bush there. Mm. I mean, I'm doing three offline hours for every one frontline hour because it does involve the data gathering, the analysis. Absolutely. And um, there's there's no no way to do this and uh, allow for a fair chance without properly delving into it and building that map and uh yeah so the 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 fact is if we're going to treat it and and, and really dive into that case there's going to be some hours that we need to put in sometimes i will have to spend what i thought was going to be 20 minutes researching something for an individual with an unusual scenario and six hours later i realized I haven't yet actually correlated the answers I'm after. Equally on top of that, how are we going to get proper data if we don't test? Um, I think there's it, there's something to be said for um, you know, being economical with mm-hmm. the tests that we yeah. order. And I'm always very keen that the tests we order are those that have a, a, a high likelihood of impacting my... Um, recommendations that I'm going to make that we can action stuff from it rather than do what unfortunately seems to be becoming more popular. Um, yeah, you've 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 got some imbalances there, so uh, yeah, we'll we'll work on that. But first, I actually just want to try. Um, let's let's throw some B12 view and see what that does. Um, <laughs> we'll we'll come back to the test. Um, yeah, it, it's it's got a few things. We'll we'll talk about that later. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, there's certain tests that I used to run, and then it turned out they were never generating any surprises. Yeah. And so, uh, okay, they're actually not impacting on my, my clinical recommendations, so we can skip that. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's going to require a shift, I mm-hmm. think. At this stage, the only population that tends to be ready to to throw their oar and are those that have run out of other options right um and and it's a shame because well i know that it's a whole lot easier to avoid falling off that cliff than it is to take that horrible painful draining climb back up after falling off 
Um, definitely prevention is better than the cure. I think I agree. always. And, you know, so we've touched upon kind of what hypothyroidism is, stress, as well as chemicals and molds, which can cause it, as well as also dietary elements, including autoimmune paleo and carnivore, which I'm, I'm actually interested in trying, although I don't think I ever will. Um, <laughs> but well, it's, it's a very interesting one. I obviously uh, tried it. Um, oh, yeah. I didn't feel any difference from it myself. Um, yeah. Do you, do you so, normally uh, have a ketogenic diet to begin with? So I will often cycle in out of ketosis. Yeah. Um, often, I mean, depending if I'm training hard, which you know, from time to time becomes a pipe dream. Um, then, yeah, I, I'm more likely to eat a carb-based diet when I'm training, mm. especially if I'm um, you know, doing any form of competition. But, yeah, under normal circumstances, it's about 50-50 um, that, that I'll, I'll spend between the two. Um, but back when my mitochondrial processes were chaotic and underpowering that is where i did spend a very substantial time in ketosis and that had a very valuable payoff for me um but yeah at these stages i i'm yeah essentially trying to honor the evolutionary design of our bodies which have been sculpted and have um evolved mm -hmm. in circumstances where we undoubtedly would have spent time being well fueled with some delicious carb, carby feasts, but also sustained periods in ketosis. So, yeah, trying to honor that works very well, both in theory and in practice. I try and cycle in and out of it and do so quite regularly, also. But I guess what I found difficult with ketosis is you just you, you're limited when you're going out for dinner or something like that, mm -hmm. or if you're eating at friends or you're going to your friend's house and you're like, oh, by the way. I'm not eating any starches. <laughs> like, it, it could just be a bit. Um, and it's the same with like alcohol. You know, yes, I'm a nutritionist, but yes, I do have a beer on occasion. Um, and that knocks you Which straight out. Which is nice. Yeah. 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 And I've always thought of it this way sometimes, where you probably yeah, uh, notice a similar experience in some conferences and the practice practitioners uh, competing to see who is you know the holiest <laughs> <Yeah>. and purest <laughs> eater um you know well you may be low carb but i actually haven't even looked at the carb i will literally blindfold myself <laughs> in tesco to avoid looking at pasta um and uh yeah alcohol but you know alcohol's bad and and yes it's going to have toxic effects at the liver it can potentially cause these permeability issues at the gut it's it's can cause oxidative stress at the mitochondria i know this but also i'm a human and sometimes going out and having a few beers with some pals is good for my soul yeah and absolutely right as a nutritional therapist haven't got the capacity to protect my liver if i if i haven't got um the means with which to 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 mitigate the damage that i need to be scared about well, then clearly i'm doing something wrong in my opinion. yeah no i entirely agree there, there's always a balance to be struck and you're right it does it does wonders for my mental health i think but the social environment i mean less the alcohol but you know i do enjoy it um well, exactly. Everything in moderation, including moderation. Yes. Unless, of course, it's going to mess you up. 
in yeah. which case don't do it <laughs> or at least wait until you know the the gut line and there's a better place yeah and you can tolerate day. it um yeah what's what's in our best interests exactly rather than you know what should we be doing or what we told we should um, I just want to touch upon one thing for people listening. When we t- spoke about the autoimmune paleo diet and the carnivore diet, I always think that, like if you're doing any major nutritional change or anything, or you want to try all these diets, and I'll link to them below, please do them um, under the under the consultation or guidance of a health professional, whether that be a doctor or a nutritionist or nutritional therapist, dietitian, etc. I think that's really important. Just a highlight. Well, yeah, I think we've we've probably both been exposed to experiments gone wrong. <laughs> um, people limping into clinic uh, with a sheepish look on their face. And yeah, so I, I've only eaten cabbage it sounded like a, a good idea. I've got one more topic I want to touch upon, and then I'll, I'll, I want to I want to get into how people can action these uh, these things and work with their doctor. Nutrients is something that we kind of touched upon at the beginning, but in particular, selenium and iodine, which you can get from mm. foods. Uh, are so important for thyroid function. And I see people thinking, mm. or they'll read on the internet, Dr. Google, um, I think I've got low thyroid function. I've got the symptoms, so I'm going to supplement selenium and iodine. And I have this mm. problem because I've heard of cases where too much iodine can cause the symptoms of hypothyroidism. Mm-hmm. And equally, you know, if you don't have them in your diet, I've heard that as well. What should people do, I guess? Well, yeah, and I think that... Um... It's obviously first important to recognize that, yes, if people are nutritionally deficient, mm-hmm. if they don't have those, you know, the, the, the nutrient status to form thyroid hormones, iodine is vital for the formation of uh, these thyroid hormones. And, um, yeah, but we generally don't need much. So around about 125 micrograms per day, which is a very small amount. Mm. Um, That's all that's called for people who are eating seafood on a regular basis. I cannot fathom that they're going to run into trouble. Um, There is obviously a very interesting discussion to be had about higher dose iodine because there sometimes is misunderstanding in that, well, if iodine deficiency causes hypothyroidism well is loads of iodine going to increase my thyroid output and the answer is no (laughs) no it's not but but high dose iodine has a fascinating relationship with the thyroid because it can solve a lot of problems and it can cause a lot of problems too so the um the case for is based on the way when we eat high dose iodine in the uh, realms of several milligrams per day, not micrograms, but milligrams, then we see uh, the cells become saturated with iodine. Mucous membranes tend to take up a huge amount. Breast tissue will also suck up a huge amount. But then what's left over can actually start to form a really interesting chemical called iodolactones, which, as the name suggests, um, is a fatty chemical bind with the iodine molecule. And that seems to have a very interesting role in controlling the instance of autoimmunity and has therefore been uh, suggested as the 
uh, solution to thyroid issues, uh, Hashimoto's thyroid issues. Now, the problem with that is that there's a lot of people for whom they benefit from that. But there's a lot of people for whom this iodine allows for a, a substantial increase in thyroglobulin. And if you happen to have anti-thyroglobulin antibodies that's driving your autoimmunity, well, now you've actually created more targets for this uh, antibody to attack. And thus, a flare can occur. And, and it's something that I have seen happen. I've actually seen more people be helped um, than be harmed. And the, the really interesting uh, thing there is... The glutathione status, antioxidant status does seem to be a really big deal in that. Um, there's research which shows that the this um, iodine flaring response, it happens much less if the population receiving iodine have selenium supplementation. Uh, and selenium works to help regenerate glutathione, mm. one of its most yeah. important roles. So, um, yes, I, I, I feel that one misinterpretation of that study was that, oh, well, if we take selenium, we'll be fine. Whereas selenium allows that glutathione um, regenerating enzyme to work. But there's plenty of other factors that could mess with glutathione status, uh, mainly uncontrolled inflammation. So that's why it's not a ticket and a license to go experimenting and hoping that this doesn't wreck your thyroid. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but yes, it, it's a great example of how the same, same response, um, the same therapeutic protocol yeah. can have such wonderfully positive impacts in some people and yet have quite harmful impacts with people with the same condition. Mm -hmm. So th that is something we can take from the iodine discussion. And just to add to that, it's really interesting when you look at um, food sources of iodine. And I think the only kind of group is South Asian communities where, or Southeast Asian communities and places like Japan where they eat a lot of sea mm. kelp and stuff where they're actually having milligrams of iodine. I think in mm. every other population, you're looking at micrograms in terms of a daily dosage from their traditional diet. Mm. And <clears throat> with selenium, and I've said this in about five podcasts now, so listeners are going to get really bored of me saying this, but <laughs> you, you see some instances of selenium toxicity with supplementation, but you see none through um, food intake because obviously Brazil nuts hugely mm. high in selenium however there's never unless someone's going to write in and prove me wrong but there's never been a document documented case to my knowledge of someone having a selenium toxicity or getting mm. selenium toxicity through brazil nut consumption which i find fascinating well it is interesting isn't it and i actually wonder how much of that is due to um regulation by appetite because yeah. Uh, it's been interesting on several occasions I've run mineral tests uh, that have highlighted low selenium and yeah in, in most cases why do we want to add another supplement in let's be honest when I go through an organic acids test and then we add another test it sometimes can be a case they've already got a decent number in 
I'm not going to back off from giving them what they need on the dogmatic basis of, well, we don't want to give them a long list. It's true we don't, but they need what they need. Um, so, But yeah, if selenium's available in Brazil nuts, why not use them? And, and I do um, acknowledge that there can be a high variability from one Brazil nut to the next. And so, yes, we've got that issue of what, can we know exactly how many micrograms? Well, let's test several weeks later. But what's been really fascinating when I've done that and we, uh, we've undergone the retest, every time someone's ended up in the higher levels of normal, I've never seen them gone excessive, um, but in the higher levels of normal, they almost always say, do you know what? I was gobbling down those Brazil nuts with abandon for, for several weeks. But, you know, what? as of about three weeks, but I just, I just didn't fancy anymore. So, um, and that's a pattern I've seen repeated several times. Um, so clearly, yeah, there's a point. Someone's low in selenium. They find Brazil nuts one of their tastiest treats. And then they reach a point where they just don't want them anymore. Yeah. And I think that that's quite a great usage of taste buds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, there's some um, research to support this. It's like nutrient sensing of foods and how people, if they're deficient in something, they'll want more of it, um, even if it's mm. a whole food. Because um, I, I think there's a difference between, you know, wanting a selenium-infused uh, pancake compared to a Brazil nut, right? So let's just to make that clear distinction. But yeah, fascinating area. I don't know, I don't know much about it, but um, it's cool that you've well, seen we that. We see it also with people with low in copper um, or magnesium. Well, there's a great food that is high in both, which is cocoa. Some people do have a unexplainable, um, single-minded craving for for chocolate, um, and you know sometimes it's not about the copper or the magnesium, admittedly. Um, but but it is interesting when I have uh, worked with people with low copper, low magnesium. We've dealt dealt with those. People say, "I just don't get the co the chocolate cravings anymore." Still tastes nice, but I don't need it anymore. That you know, that's that's really fascinating because um, I for a long time craved dark chocolate and only eat above eighty five percent, right? And I went to a hundred percent recently. There's a couple of brands which, which do it. <laughs> I think, yeah, like, good luck with that. <laughs> I don't know how they've made it, but um, yeah, it's a hundred percent, and I, I loved it for a time, and then now wow. just I don't buy it anymore. Um, I've tried a hundred percent cocoa. Yeah, it's super hot. bitter. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's so bitter. Ninety uh, percent, I can get down with. That's fine. Eighty-five percent, I enjoy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm with you on that 100%. one now. Hundred percent just seems. Um, that's yeah. That's too much. Yeah, it's torturous too... for some people. I know. I've, I've seen I, I, that, yeah, I thought. It. Yeah, just that little extra makes yeah. all the difference. So uh, yeah, there's there's a good use of ten percent sugar, right? Yeah. So the last thing I want to touch upon is a lot of people might be at home thinking, right, I'm taking armor thyroid or, or whatever thyroid medication they're on, um, levothyroxine, for example, and they want to, they're working with a nutritionist or they want to, and they're thinking, how can I get off my medication? Because the last thing I think both of us want them to want them to do, stop mm. <laughs> um, immediately. Well, yeah. So I would just yeah, people it. are going to notice that. Yeah. So how do you work, I guess, with doctors 
with that patient that um, you mentioned before with the huge reversal of hypothyroidism, how did that work, that interaction with the medical professional? Yeah, so um, this was where she actually was going to the doctor anyway and happened to mention that she had a whole load of energy um and uh yeah and it turned out that she was a little bit over medicated um at that point and yeah that's um uh, the the most common issue now the good news being that if somebody no longer needs all of that medication well initially we'll see their tsh just drop right down um so there's this early stage where they no longer need the medication or at least they no longer need the dose that they're on um, they haven't yet moved into hyperthyroidism they're not yet getting big bulging eyes they're not yet spending their evening staring at the ceiling because they can't sleep they're not yet sweating um, all day every day but their brain is already registering the level of active thyroid hormones that's saying, whoa, 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 and dialing down the stimulation. So if we uh, happen to know which interventions are likely to aid in thyroid metabolism, those are the times when I would normally uh, look for both symptoms and key signs especially for example temperature mm -hmm. uh, thermometer measurements now you cannot gauge thyroid function um, by the thermometer alone but it's a very interesting clue when something's changed uh, and if somebody's temperatures are now registering more than 37 degrees every single day Mm -hmm. and they're not subject to super high stress and adrenaline which can raise temperatures they're not subject to immune activity which could induce fever and we've actually implemented changes that we know are likely to uh, allow for better functioning of their thyroid enzymes well now we've got all of the signs that they have just seen a shift in which case let's get them back to their doctor and that actually makes it quite easy to catch um, these changes before they have to suffer, you know, the hyper uh, symptoms that we really would rather they not experience. So, yeah, by using a combination of good old observation of symptoms and, yeah, the thermometer too, but equally, you know, I've done more than my fair share of statistical analyses and i can see with these individuals with these particular symptoms well there's a pretty decent chance that when i provide this inflammatory support in their case this could be the uh, point at which we see a shift and so if at uh, that point, which I'll have put a warning in their notes, look out for these symptoms, make sure you do measure your temperatures on these days. If we see any signs, well, let's take them back to the doctors. And uh, yeah, sure enough, we are likely to end up with that uh, what's becoming a classic response. Well, uh, it, it won't be the nutrition that's done this, but yes, we'll lower your dose. I, I don't <laughs> know why for the first time in years you need a lower dose, but um, yes, clearly you're over-medicated, let's lower it. But it's not the nutrition. 
how receptive are doctors if you do work with them? Do you ever write doctor's notes or things like that, or are there certain professionals which you work with on a regular basis? Yeah, um, to be honest, most are, are pretty receptive. Um, <laughs> there's some that aren't, which sometimes leads to some interesting discussions. Um, so, yeah, sometimes the fact that my letterhead you know, has Harley Street uh, written on it, it shouldn't make any difference, and yet it does. Um, so it hasn't generally been much of a problem um, when, when it comes to writing brief notes. I try and keep it a paragraph long um, so that I am always um, yeah, providing a suggestion and nothing else. Um, but, of course, <laughs> I've been doing this a while, and I do have stories which, uh, yeah, we'll... Uh, probably touch on another time some of them uh, are funny some of them are just confusing uh where yeah the the, the n-word clearly has uh caused great insults that this patient would dare go outside of mainstream medicine and consult a nutritionist <laughs> i'm glad i brought that up and I, I think a lot of people have experienced that before so you're not alone in that regard. Yeah, it, it definitely can happen for sure. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yes, my favourite is uh, always when, I don't know what made this change that we've been seeking for years, but it definitely wouldn't have been the nutrition. We're not going to um, uh, dive into that hole because we'll, we'll just never, never stop. So I'm going to move <laughs> on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to move on to the last three questions. Oh, that brings us to the last three questions, which I ask everyone who comes on the show. The first one is, what is the most impactful health change that you've made in your life and why? Do you know what? <laughs> it can be a, anything. That's a very difficult one. Um, I, um, I, I don't think I could really pinpoint one. I, w I would just be offering somebody for the sake of it. The most uh, effective supplement I've ever taken, magnesium. Um, the most uh, effective dietary protocol, keto, uh, the most effective antimicrobial measure, eliminating H. pylori, um, the most effective non-nutritional thing, oh, it's, it's a toss-up between chiropractic adjustments and dealing with a dental infection. Um, so I, I, you know, there, there's, there's, been, there's been a lot going on. I mean, I, this is totally papering over solving nutritional yeah. uh, support for mitochondria. It's totally papering over, um, yeah, the opening up of phase three detox at the liver. And yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, I haven't even touched on adrenal issues, which, yeah. you know, for, for many years, people assumed that that was my thing. And it was one of many things. That, but yeah, adrenal support, maybe that was possibly the biggest one thing. I. Yeah, there's been a lot of things on the way. So yeah. I apologize for ducking that question, but <laughs> I just couldn't give you a, a genuine answer to that. That's really interesting because I guess it's just everyone's different. And if you have like so many things that you're trialing, I can understand why. Some people are just like, hot yoga changed my life or, you know, something where it was just like one thing and like that definitely moved the dial massively more so than everything else. And the chiropractic ad adjustment, I don't think anyone has mentioned that before. So, yeah. Well, I one. actually, I can remember it was a Thursday morning. Uh, I know that because I was in Harley Street 
on Thursday afternoon. I had three appointments. Um, and I remember I had the adjustment going in there. And on the way out, <laughs> the chiropractor uh, said to me, you might find yourself really sleepy, um, which would be totally normal because oxygen is now rushing to your head. Um, this was a massive adjustment. I was like, okay, cool. And sure enough, sitting down was a problem <laughs> because I now found that my eyes were just starting to drop and I had never felt that sleepy during the daytime. Last 10 minutes of the appointment, I was struggling to keep eye contact because I'm blinking so hard. Um, and then joy of joy was something that almost never happened out of cancellation last minute my assistant texts me by the way 120 is not coming in and i thought amazing and i just slept for an hour and <laughs> that was enough to get me through the afternoon but what a difference so um yeah and then that night i went and slept for 12 hours um but uh but yeah so uh yeah i can attest to the difference going from being starved of oxygen to having oxygen it's really nice to give you brain <laughs> oxygen right i'm definitely gonna have to go to a chiropractor now i don't think there's anything wrong with me but just that story's enough i think um, well if you're a human being and you haven't had your posture adjusted again let's look at you know tribal societies your traditional uh healing they never skip the body work yeah um and so you know, do, do we think we can you know, play these sports? I mean, I, I had two decades of football and you know, a lot of collisions in central midfield, many of which were my instigation. Mm. Um, you know, martial arts, um, yeah. I competed in Muay Thai. Um, it's fair to say I took a, a fair share of hits in that time. Um, and yeah, there's just real life. Like we fall, we slip, we, 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 we're constantly stressing our spine to think that I, I waited till I was 27 before I had a chiropractic adjustment. Right. I'm booking it. <laughs> I'll let you know. There you go. go. Sold. <laughs> how can healthcare become more integrated in the kind of modalities that we've touched upon in this podcast? Um, so again, I mean, we, we, I could give you a 37 point list, but I think it yeah, is more just... basic than that. Mm. I think one, read the literature. Don't just read the summary. Well, in fact, reading the summary would be a start, but actually read it. I know I, I spoke about the, the silver and last 1979 paper, which still isn't being applied. Um, so yeah, just reading, I think would be a useful thing rather than just leaning on what they were told by some gray old professor um, back in the late seventies. Um, that's not, that's not enough. So, so reading would be one. <laughs> um, and two, I think uh, uh, questioning the, the statements we make. Um, if, if they say, yeah, there's no cure. I think that would be a really good question. For example, autoimmune Hashimoto's um, thyroiditis. That's not a thyroid issue. That's an immune issue that is manifesting at thyroid. So we are consistently fed this idea that oh, there's, there's no cure for that. But it wasn't happening two months back. Now it is happening. Something changed to trigger this process. And admittedly, it can be very hard 
to break these self-perpetuating cycles. But when they have taken precisely zero steps to try and understand what's driving it and have only just compensated by replacing with the hormones that aren't being formed, they've taken no attempt to understand it, no attempt to actually deal with it, and are then saying, yeah, nothing you can do about it. So that's where I said, yeah, questioning the, the statements that we make would be a good start. I've got one final question, but before I ask it, it's been wonderful to have you on, by the way, but could you please tell the listeners where they can find you? fun ranting. (laughs) But can you tell the listeners where they can find you and what exciting projects that you have coming up? So they can find me at my website, marrickdoyle.com. There's some articles on there, and the best thing about them is that I agree with everything within those articles. Um, they can find me at Instagram, Marrick Doyle Nutrition. Um, and yeah, what am I working on right now? I'm actually just trying to put together um, some some quick books, you know, 20-page down and dirty guides that will, on, on a number of subjects that I'm dealing with all the time, that will be a case of here's some key principles Here's the most common mistakes. Here's things that make a difference. And who's likely to benefit from each individual one? And if it doesn't work, here's where you should look at. So that's that's coming up at some point. And uh, yeah, hopefully that will be useful for some people. Great. I'll link to your website and all socials in the show notes for everyone. And that brings us to the last final question, Marek. So can you please provide the listeners with three tips to help improve their health and well-being from today? Okay, so um, number one, take an organic acids test. Um, 75 different markers across a whole range of systems in the body, neurotransmitters, um, microbiome indicators, nutritional status, you know, indications whether you can handle certain food chemicals, your good biome status, and also a really good insight to what's going on in your mitochondria. It's not as mysterious as people think. And when you have a glimpse that tells you where the blockages are, it's quite easy to unblock those blockages. So yeah, um, I've never seen an organic acids test that didn't come with actionable steps. So that's number one. Number two, rest when you need to rest. Sounds simple, um, but if rest is stressful for you, and that's a lot of people out there um, that actually feel very um, stressed, they, they find themselves agitated by not doing things, well then investigate why. I'm not here to provide the answers to that. That's a very, very big question, but rest. We are humans and the only thing that's more impressive than our capacity to do stuff is, is our insistence on pushing it one step too far. So, yeah, that is number two. And number three would be stop asking what's good and what's bad or what's effective and what's ineffective. And instead, consider when is something uh, likely to work, you know, in who is it likely to work in? And, of course, the underlying uh, question uh, there is why. 
mechanisms allow us to to identify who is suitable for what intervention and, and and when is it likely to work when is it not but this idea that we're obsessed with with what's a good way to solve adrenal issues you know what what's what's a good mitochondrial supplement doesn't work that way mm-hmm. so not what but when and why and who <laughs> love it marrick it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show i think we've spoken for the best part of two hours there um, and I've enjoyed every second. It's been really interesting. Well, I guess we call that a half marathon at two hours. <laughs> yeah. I, d- I think I did mine in like three hours 51. So close enough. <laughs> okay. Do you want to know a bit of trivia? Cool. My, I've done four marathons in my time. And oh, nice. my personal best is three hours 51. No way. Yeah. Oh, Edinburgh Marathon 2008. Yeah, I did Brighton uh, 2018. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay, so if we were to race now, there's only yeah. one winner then. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I don't know how fast you are, but we'll see. Um, I feel my cardiovascular condition is not at its peak right <laughs> now. <laughs> I'll cut this bit out. I'm I'm comfortable. I'm still strong. So as long as that's the case, I'll be all right. It's been a huge pleasure again. And uh, I do hope we can do this again soon. Oh no, I'm down. We've uh I feel like we covered so much, but there was more that we didn't cover. Yeah. Well, we'll uh, we'll touch base on that. All right. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today in the show notes. If you have a second, please consider leaving a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does make a huge difference and helps get this valuable information out and reach more people. Don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date and know whenever I release a new episode. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook or our website and all questions are welcome. As always, thanks to Joss Aurelia for the editing and Alan Harper for his support. 